Thanks for tuning in to the ICEF podcast. This episode is sponsored by University College Birmingham, an award-winning university in the heart of the UK, dedicated to the international student experience. Once you step outside of those top sending markets, you get into a really interesting mix of new growth markets and some, again, that we've referred to here. I mean, Nigeria is not a new market for many recruiters, but it's growing really, really strongly. And that reflects, I think, a pattern of growth that we're anticipating for a number of markets across Africa, across Latin America, across South Asia. This and more in this new episode of the ICEF podcast your monthly review for education professionals in the international student recruitment industry. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. Thanks, Lucinda, and welcome back, everyone, to the ICEF podcast. We have a full episode in store for you covering various relevant areas in international education. First of all, a brief look at some recent news and developments, together with ISAF Monitor's Editor-in-Chief Craig Riggs, highlighting a recent study about the use of messaging apps in key Asian markets and a global survey that lists Canada and Australia as top-choice destinations among prospective international students. From there, we'll move on to our main topic, also the title of this podcast episode. Are the traditional student corridors under pressure? how global events are affecting international student flows. We have Chris Kirk from UCAS International, Mirka Martel from the Institute of International Education and Alice Wilby from the University College of Birmingham joining us for this main topic. And after a brief message from our sponsor, we will conclude this episode with our keys to the market section where this month the spotlights are on Egypt as a key student recruitment market. Coming up, the main topic of discussion for this episode, but first, as in each month, we kick off with a look at some recent news and developments in the international student recruitment industry. Craig, welcome back. A full episode indeed, so let's dive right into it. What do you say? I say uh, great to be back with you, Martin, as always. Thanks for having me. So, Craig, as I said, let's dive right into it. When we say messaging apps, I immediately think of, say, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, perhaps even Telegram or, or Snap. However, when we look at Asia, we see a whole different range of popular messaging apps, which, of course, is very crucial for international education professionals to understand if they are looking to recruit from Asia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had an item on Monitor recently that was looking at just that. It was based on a study from Sonorbis, which was tracking in part the use of messaging apps across nine or ten key markets across Asia. So China, India, Japan, elsewhere across the region. And it's fascinating to see it sketched out in this way because it just demonstrates like how much that usage varies from market to market. You know, the, especially these days when we're all thinking so much about digital marketing and increasing reliance on digital channels. What this type of study makes you realize is that that effort is just increasingly nuanced, right? You may be very active on one channel or have an excellent footprint on one service or another, but it doesn't necessarily translate to the next market that you're trying to reach, right? And so part of the takeaway for me from this study was was really that it's just a great illustration of how uh, specific your use of these different digital channels has to be market for market, true in Asia or elsewhere, of course. Yeah, so it emphasizes the role of the agencies, I'm sure, because the agencies, you can expect them to understand the apps that work in their respective markets. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think it's partly what it's one of the things that people rely on education agents for is that sort of local knowledge expertise, you know, and, and especially in something like digital marketing where, you know, those conditions can be so fluid, right? It's, it's you know, you again, you, you, you may even have your channels nicely tuned for China, and then something changes. So there's a new app that is drawing, you know, user attention to a, to a surprising degree. And if you are not, you know, active there, you're just not reaching the marketplace in the way that you should be. This is, is part of the challenge, I think, that digital marketing sets up for us. That's a little bit different, you know, and I, and I confess earlier in my career, I was recruiting for for language schools or for universities, and our, our approach was not nearly so nuanced. And, and uh, you know, but now when we have this increasing reliance on digital channels, part of what that sets up for, for recruiting institutions is a continuous challenge to stay on top of those new services and, and apps and channels that people are using to prioritize and manage your investment across those channels. Uh, I think it requires uh, a much higher degree of discipline than we've had to apply in the past to our marketing tactics. Yeah, and I must admit, there's a whole spectrum of apps out there. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you have never heard of apps like Xiao Hongshu, Line, Be Real, Kakao Talk, or Zalo, then you're probably not the only one, but you may need to do some homework. Mm -hmm. The start would be to read that Synorbis report, and you can find it via isafmonitor.com. Next up is IDP's Emerging Futures Research, which was conducted among 11,000 prospective students, applicants, and current students. And here, 27% of the surveyed students listed Canada as top study destination, same result as earlier this year, followed by 25% expressing their preference for Australia, up from 20% in March. The UK is stable in third position at 20%, and the US is in fourth position, down from 20% to 18%. Um, Craig, the usual suspects in the top four positions, but impressive here is the rise of Australia to second position in such a short time frame, growing from 20% to 25%. Do you think that is simply that post-COVID effect with Australian borders having reopened, or are there some other factors that we need to address here? I, I think a little bit of both. I mean, we always pay attention to these types of surveys. I mean, who doesn't like a good student student facing survey, especially one that's operating at a large scale as this one is. What's of note here is that these are all prospective students. So we're talking about a sample of 11,000 respondents that are prospective students. They're planning to study abroad. They have not yet begun to do so. And uh, as you say, part of what the survey asked them to indicate is their preference in terms of study destination. And we do see Australia as the big mover in this occasional survey. And why is that happening? Well, part of it is that borders are reopened. As of December last year, the Australian borders were once again fully reopened for international students after an extended closure during the pandemic these last couple of years. But behind that is, I think, a few factors. One is that we see an easing of uh, work rights for international students in Australia. We see a growing perception of safety and of, of, of a welcoming destination for international students on the part of Australia. These are not new qualities for Australia as a destination, like it has been obviously a leading study destination for, for some years. But what is attention getting about this survey, I think, is that there has been a lot of concern after that extended border closure over 2020 through most of 21. Uh, there was a lot of concern on the part of Australian educators that it would take a long time to rebuild Australia's market position. What this and what some of the surging visa data for this year and even other surveys of a similar vein that we've seen in the in the first half of 22 are showing us very clearly is that that 
demand for study in Australia is still very strong and is surging back, I think, beyond uh, expectations, I think it would be fair to say, so far this year. Very impressive bounce back from 20 to 25 percent. Do you recall what that percentage was before the COVID restrictions? Uh, I don't offhand, but I mean, Australia was very comfortably set. It was edging ahead of the UK as the as the world's second study destination by foreign enrollment before the onset of the pandemic. And so that's the the best survey of all. You know, how is your foreign enrollment trending for your destination? And uh, many thousands of students were voting with their feet uh, for Australia before COVID kicked off. And then, of course, we had this extended disruption where the country's borders were closed to international students and most other international visitors for an extended period. Thus, the concern in the process of that fairly strict lockdown, Australia had given up its its market position in some respect and would take some time to rebuild. But as I say, we're seeing that demand come back quite strongly this year so far. Wonderful. So Canada still proudly on top with Australia now back on their heels. It's interesting to see what that future outlook is for numbers three and four, the UK and the US, which we'll surely touch upon in this month's main topic. And now for the main topic of discussion for this episode, we ask whether traditional student corridors are under pressure and how global events are affecting international student flows. Future projections about the growth of international education remain very positive, forecasting significant growth. Our industry, however, is surely not immune to the turmoil that is coming at us from so many angles. Geopolitical conflicts, pandemic, populism, oil prices, inflation, climate change, and I, I can go on. So how exactly are these global events affecting our industry? And especially, how are they influencing these, say, traditional student corridors? We'll be trying to answer these questions together with Chris Kirk, director at UCAS International, Mirka Martel, head of research, evaluation and learning at the Institute of International Education, and Alice Wilby, pro-vice chancellor at the University College of Birmingham, and a very warm welcome to the three of you. Now, before we get started, may I ask each of you for a brief introduction, please, and Mirka, may I start with you? Absolutely, Martin. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for the invitation. I'm Mirka Martel. I work at the Institute of International Education, or IIE, and I oversee our research, evaluation, and learning services. Primarily, um, we focus on international student and scholar mobility trends to and from the United States through our Open Doors report on international educational exchange. And in addition to that, we also focus on global mobility trends, and that primarily through our Project Atlas initiative, where we work with 30 of our partners across the world to collect their data on international global mobility trends. Um, so a pleasure to be here again. Wonderful. We look forward to hearing more about that data. Uh, Alice. Hi, thank you for inviting me. So I'm Alice Wilby. I am a Pro Vice Chancellor at University College Birmingham. So my role includes a wide remit across marketing and international, but also student support. And UCB or University College Birmingham is a medium-sized university right in the heart of Birmingham in the UK um, with a significant and growing number of international students. And I'm sure I'll say a bit more about it later on. Great, lovely to hear the angle from your uh, college university in this conversation. And Chris. Yeah, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Kirk from the Universities and Colleges Admission Service. So we're an in independent charity that supports the shared application and admission process for undergraduate applications in the UK. 
And in a typical year, and, and last year was up, we, we process about 135 applications for our university partners and helped place just over 60,000 students, making it sort of the number one access route to undergraduate education. In my role, I'm also helping to develop out support for providers and students around postgraduate entry. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Chris. Well, America, as, as I mentioned, future projections about the growth of international education remain very positive, yet we're faced with so much global insecurity in so many areas. So how would you explain the solid growth projections for our, our industry? Well, I think that there are many factors to consider. Um, I think even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, as Craig mentioned, there, were, uh, there was a multitude of factors that went into international students' choices to study abroad. Those included the cost of, of their education. It included health and safety. It included uh, other factors around uh, geopolitical or, or economic factors. And those are still, of course, incredibly prevalent in the minds of students who are looking to study abroad. What we have found is that, especially um, amid the COVID-19 pandemic, health and safety does, does continue to be a primary concern. But we're also seeing that institutions around the world are really focusing on this and are focusing on getting their students back on campuses um, for in-person study. So what we saw, at least in the United States, was that in the past year, in the past academic year, 89% of the institutions reported that their international students were back on campus. And this was huge. This was a, a positive, positive inclination in terms of where international students are going, the fact that they are traveling again, and the fact that institutions are really prioritizing health and safety to make sure that international students can be back on campus. That being said, there are still opportunities for virtual study and hybrid study. And I think that that is one of the flexible adaptations that has really come amid COVID-19. So in that same study that we did, we actually found that over half of the institutions who hadn't had any type of virtual um, study before the pandemic had introduced virtual study and would be continuing to offer virtual study in addition to in-person. So I think these types of flexible adaptations are also really important when international students are thinking about where to go, when, and when to travel. And do you expect that affordability issues may push actually prospective international students to choose those uh, virtual online and hybrid models? It is certainly a possibility. I think there are a lot of opportunities for international students to be smart, um, to think about their various choices and to think about what institutions are offering. And it's something that institutions have to really think about very, very closely. And especially currently, um, again, amid COVID-19, amid some of the economic turmoil, international students and their families, particularly undergraduate, have to think about this, have to think about the cost of education and what that will mean for their families. So I think it is certainly something that will be another possibility or another flexible option for international students to pursue virtual study, in-person study, or a hybrid. And when we say turmoil, what are some of the main factors that influence the appeal of the U.S. as a study destination at the moment? 
So I think by and large, the United States has been a traditional host destination. It continues to be the leading destination of international students to the country. U.S. colleges and universities, again, are offering that in-person experience, which I think has been a huge draw, um, getting that experience on a U.S. campus, getting to meet other students. Um, so I think that, that continues to be a, a really large draw for institutions or for international students to institutions in the United States. But certainly competition is growing, as we heard in the first segment with you and Craig. And so I think it's important for to keep all of these factors in mind and to ensure that international students, wherever they go, have the best international education experience. Right. So Chris, as America says, competition is growing. I'm sure that applies to the UK as well, a traditional, very popular destination, not a cheap destination. Of course, Brexit is the word we cannot mm-hmm. avoid also in this podcast. So also faced with lots of challenges. What's the outlook for the UK at the moment? Yeah, so I think there's three drivers working in the UK at the moment, some real upside, but actually some downside. Um, and I'd probably pick out Brexit being one. I'll come on to that in a second. <laughs> introduction of the graduate route visa really having an impact on huge growth from India and Nigeria is two good examples. And then I would say COVID is having a real sort of roller coaster impact for some countries where overall we've seen a return to pre-COVID levels up into especially visa applications, but China significantly down in the first half of the year where obviously a number of lockdowns continue to restrict, whereas they probably returned at the end of 2021 to looking back to only just a little bit around sort of their their long-term growth trajectory. So if we we start with Brexit as the first one, obviously the UK is suffering from huge reductions um, in placement through the UCAS undergraduate process. We're now 64% down on placed applicants since 2020, when a lot of the visa restrictions and increased fees and lack of student loan access really kicked in. But there are still pockets where that decline has been much less. And I think that's one opportunity for UK universities really target a different profile of student who has the financial means, has a a global outlook that we shouldn't neglect Europe just because Brexit has happened. But it's obviously had a massive impact. The overall growth in non-EU has definitely offset that decline. So numbers are are relatively up on, on before. But like I said, I think that's down to really the graduate route in India, where we've seen you know, huge 100% increases in the number of visas applied since before Brexit. So you can imagine if COVID hadn't happened, I think it would have been even more. So I think that trend will continue. Um, and China is very much dependent on how quickly that recovers due to the, the restrictions. So like I said, a positive outlook that came in 2021, but because of new lockdowns really declined significantly. I mean, it's two, we had two thirds less visa applications in H1, so first half of 2022, than we did on, on the, uh, 2019, so pre-COVID. So it, it shows there's still a real impact of Chinese students um, leaving for international destinations. So I think once that's opened up, we definitely see through our application rates, demand will return to pre-COVID levels. It's just about being able to get out of the country. Right, and Chris, for those unfamiliar with the topic, can you tell us a little bit more about the specifics of the graduate route? Yeah, so the graduate route was an introduction for all students to have the right to work in the UK for two years after graduation. So under our previous Home Secretary and Prime Minister, Theresa May, 
all kind of post-study visa routes were closed off and they were reintroduced. And like we said, India and Nigeria especially have taken that up. It's had less impact on markets like uh, China and the US, where I don't think it's as important factor. And then at the end of the two years, they can obviously apply for a sponsored visa with their employer, which we, we expect a lot of them to take up. So it becomes a real reason for that long-term migration rather than just to study. Theresa May, that sounds like ages ago. Yes. <laughs> Alice, um, do you see those uh, influence reflected also in your enrollment and applications numbers for so the three that uh, Chris just mentioned, Brexit and the graduate route and, uh, and China? Yeah. Absolutely. So we saw a significant reduction in the number of EU students coming to study with us, and we were one of the institutions with the highest proportion of EU students in the UK. As Chris alluded to, we replaced those numbers with a mixture of UK and international students, actually, in our case, and more than replaced them. That is partly down to post-study work visas and huge, huge growth in India and Nepal and Nigeria for us. We've seen a slight increase in interest from China in the last few months. So it's starting to pick back up, but it is a much more difficult location to work with now. And obviously the historic ways in which we recruited students by often sending staff out to go and meet them and to go and meet agents isn't practical in China at the moment. So it's it's causing institutions to really rethink how they do their recruitment as well and what channels they use and how far they rely on agents to do in-country agents or in-country officers to do their work, which is changing things quite a lot, I think. I actually think government challenges aside, I think the biggest challenge for most UK universities at the moment is actually capacity rather than growth. Um, we're seeing such a high volume of applications that actually the main issue that most of us are facing is how to process them efficiently and in a way that's fair and appropriate and that maintains the quality of the offer to students, which obviously is really important to us. And particularly those universities like ours that are reliant on South Asia and reliant on the postgrad market, those markets are very high volume. And so actually making sure that we can appropriately assess the quality of the applications and also then that we can support students appropriately once they arrive is a real priority now for lots of universities, including mine. That's a bit like a luxury problem indeed. Now you mentioned high volume markets and of course, as in many of these podcast episodes, countries like China and India are, are discussed. And of course, um, traditional study destinations, US, UK, Canada, Australia. But Craig, if, if those are, let's say, the traditional student corridors, what are some of the upcoming student corridors? Which are some of the main source countries and some of new destinations that are quickly rising in, in popularity and appeal? Mm -hmm. I think uh, once you step outside of those major sending markets, I mean, every established study destination, especially the ones we're talking about today, Australia, Canada, the UK, the US, if you look at the composition of foreign enrollment in each of those countries, a large proportion of it's going to be accounted for by like, let's say a top three or four countries, right? India and China, certainly among them. Once you step outside of those top sending markets, you get into a really interesting mix of new growth markets. And some, again, that we've re referred to here. I mean, Nigeria is not a new market for many recruiters, but it's growing really, really strongly. And that reflects, I think, a pattern of growth that we're anticipating for a number of markets across Africa, across Latin America, across South Asia, uh, where you know, we're seeing real growth. The, the numbers, the broad patterns that are playing out for some of these you know, leading study destinations that we're talking about is that China numbers are down, India numbers are up significantly you know, over these last couple of years in particular. 
But the, the other part of the story is that we're seeing a broader distribution of growth across uh, a number of what we would characterize as, as emerging growth markets in Latin America, South Asia, and Africa in particular. There's a big question mark around China, and I'd be interested in the panel's thoughts on this in terms of what factors are contributing to that downward trend that we're seeing uh, for, for Chinese outbound uh, numbers these last couple of years. But the happy counterpoint is that we're, we're seeing strong growth from a, from a really interesting mix of, of new sending markets. And so I think the, the situation that Alice describes is increasingly common for institutions around the world where they're struggling not so much with meeting growth targets, but thinking about with real issues of capacity, however capacity is defined for some institutions, it's just, you know, the capacity to have, you know, X number of students on campus. For others, there are some real issues around housing, student housing, or other services for students that we're really bumping up against some, some capacity limits there these days. But I think the, you know, we're seeing an, a, a bit of a, definitely institutions are grappling with those types of capacity issues, but they're also, putting a greater emphasis on, on on diversifying foreign enrollment i think than we've seen in the past in part because of some of those capacity issues in part because one of the lessons of the pandemic is that you know an over reliance on one or two key sending markets is just a huge amount of risk for any destination or institution to carry and so i think that's part of th those those factors are all starting to play together as we move into the second half of of 22. I agree. It would be interesting to hear the panel's views on this. Mirka? Yeah, I completely agree. And I want to pick up on, on two points that Craig uh, mentioned, and that's really kind of the sending countries. I think we found last fall and we continue to see that, yes, institutions are continue to prioritize India and China, uh, though India has been rising, of course, as a, a priority given the growing numbers we've been seeing in the last academic year. But exactly, we reported on this uh, even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the trends we had been seeing in countries, including Nigeria, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Latin American countries like uh, Brazil or Mexico. Uh, these are emerging international student markets, and I think we should be um, looking to these markets and looking at how institutions, higher institutions around the world can be diversifying that international student pipeline and potentially spreading really beyond the, these traditional corridors. You ask about China, I think that there are many factors that are at play here. Of course, COVID-19, again, health and safety measures are certainly one. Uh, we had seen a, a potential slowing of some of the Canadian uh, enrollments uh, even prior to the pandemic. So I think that there's also going to be an interesting view here of kind of where this is going to go. But again, to Craig's point, I think diversification is really, really important. I do want to touch on one other point that Craig made, and that's around capacity. And so this is a big topic, right? Uh, what is the capacity of institutions in each of these destination countries to host larger and larger numbers of international students? And I think when you look at some of the first data that you brought out, which was IDP Connect and where prospective students want to go um, versus where there is capacity, where there is room for students to go. Um, and so again, looking at capacity in, in places like Canada, 
uh, Australia and the UK and the United States, you can kind of see where is more capacity for institutions to really be hosting international students as well. Wonderful. Uh, Chris? Yeah, the, I think the capacity one is, is definitely a big one to pick up on. I'll just add also, certainly undergraduate level within the UK is media and sort of public sentiment around, you know, the number of international students coming to the UK. We have a, a rising 18-year-old demographic in the UK, so we're getting more and more people each year coming through. And also the number of people at 18 years old applying for an undergrad provision is increasing. So we're getting this slight dynamic of people with very high attainment, very good grades, not being able to get onto very selective programmes, especially things like dentistry, medicine, veterinary sciences, areas like that. And I think there is the potential for as we churn our home secretaries and we churn our education secretaries on an almost weekly basis at the moment in the UK, that those things become something that the wrong minister at the wrong time could implement measures that restrict, especially if it was to do with the graduate route visa, uh, where there's been few concerns around dependents coming along with the student. So I, I think the, the political climate should be one that's watched in the UK. And, and hopefully with this new government that's being announced today, we'd like some stability. I think the whole sector would just like some sensible, pragmatic, growth-driven government now that will will ensure that there's not too much disruption on where we are. Wonderful. I see you nodding, Alice. Yeah, um, I'm, I don't think there are many people who disagree with that, but I think the interesting point there for, for me is that as a sector in the UK, we've got a lot of work to do on the messaging around why international students are valuable to the UK and the contribution that students are making. And this is against a backdrop, both of, as Chris was saying, some elements of the UK sector being really stretched for capacity, for UK as well as for international students, but also against a backdrop of reducing real fee levels for UK students in, the U in UK institutions, which also puts pressure on, and also a... UK economy, which is increasingly struggling to find enough people to fill all the job vacancies. And so international students and students on post-study work visas could be a fantastic resource for the UK economy. But that story is quite a hard one to tell at the moment. If we get that right, I think the opportunities for growth are enormous um, and the opportunities to really for the sector to make a real difference to the UK economy beyond what it already does, which is obviously very substantial. So I think there's a lot to do there. We've probably got a better chance now of being able to tell that story with the new iteration of the government, but it's early days. We shall see. I think the big challenge initially will be China, where we've got a government that's increasingly finding relate, close relations between UK universities and Chinese universities problematic. And so we'll probably see some reaction to that at some point. And just going back to the capacity point, it's not simply about how many students have you got in total. That's important. Um, but it's also about where the students are. And some of the reason that there's a push to diversify markets is because there's also a push to diversify subject mix. And one of the challenges with international student recruitment into the UK is that it's very concentrated in a handful of subject areas, which puts real capacity constraints on institutions. But it also means on the flip side of that, that there are courses that were historically reliant on markets that no longer produce many students, particularly on EU students, which are now looking less viable. And they tend to be the courses at the more modern universities in things like arts and humanities. And 
as a sector, again, we haven't quite found the solution to that that helps to sustain those smaller courses that are institutionally and nationally really significant and important, but don't necessarily bring in the huge numbers that you need in order to maintain the overall quality in institutions. Here are some traditional student corridors that are and have been under pressure, of course, China to the UK, EU to the UK. And now, Chris and, and America, you, you both do a lot of research and have a lot of data. What among your recent research are some of the eye-opener, some results that you would link to the current global events, Mirka? I think that there are a few that are happening that are front of mind. Uh, in the spring, we asked institutions what support they were giving to students from Ukraine and Russia. So I think certainly the Ukraine-Russia conflict has been one area where um, higher education institutions around the world have stepped up and have provided safe havens and have provided safe spaces for their international students to, to study, whether there are students who had been there already or whether they're prospective students. One of the interesting things we found in the survey we did in the spring was that international recruitment for students from uh, Russia and Ukraine had not decreased. And equally, U.S. higher education institutions were interested to have international students from Ukraine and Russia come to study in the United States if they were interested, uh, really providing this academic experience to all international students. We also found that they were providing uh, incredible support to Ukrainian or Russian students who are already on campus. So whether it was providing support um, in terms of health and wellness and, and well-being, when it was referring to their continued study, or if they were finishing their studies opportunities for optional practical training or otherwise in terms of other academic opportunities. So that support for students from Russia and Ukraine has been something we have been uh, looking at certainly in our research recently. Well, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I think I'd pick up on, on one point Alice made around diversity taking up a number of ways and, you know, the the UK is a destination, those numbers aren't evenly distributed. So there's a diversity of, of, of courses and subjects, diversity of institutions. So still huge numbers looking at brand of university and more selective universities than actually a lot of the excellent provision that exists across the whole sector. And obviously diversity of country, but I, I think that's, as, as Ali said, linked to course diversity is actually on certain courses, we universities would welcome many more students. So I think it's for the UK to address a little bit of that of understanding of what the whole sector can offer, not just a few universities. I'd also pick up on that. The perception measures we do haven't changed over the last few years. UK is still seen as an excellent destination, excellent quality of credential, you know, strong brand that parents want to brag about, their students going to, that sort of thing. That that hasn't changed. It's the sub factors under that around COVID, Brexit and others that are really, I think, going to impact what the long term picture looks like. Wonderful. Well, in conclusion, and as a final question to our guest speakers, based on your research, on your experience, or maybe even your, your gut feeling, let's answer that question, which is also today's episode's topic. Are the traditional student corridors under pressure, America? Well, I think they are under pressure and they always have been under pressure. I think that there is um, continued interest, continued um, desire by international students to study abroad. I think during COVID-19, there was certainly a concern 
whether this was the end of international educational exchange. And, and I think we now see that the answer is a resounding no. Uh, international students continue to be as interested to study abroad as they were before. But these corridors have been under pressure. They had been under pressure before when we saw that um, competition was growing, when we saw that there were new host destinations. And I'm not even talking about the top four. We also know that France, Germany, Russia, China are emerging host destinations for international students. So whether those players are going to be in the game and going to continue to be in the game as strong players, the, those pressures will continue to be there. And that is why institutions and governments um, in these countries need to, to step it up, need to be there, need to be at the forefront, need to be, to Chris's point, you know, uh, putting together sound messages sound reasoning for international students to come study in their host destination and to really continue to appeal to international students for that well-rounded experience. Thank you, Alice. I agree. I think there has always been pressure. There's always been challenges, but the opportunities from international study for individuals and for countries, both host countries and for countries sending students to study are incredible. And those opportunities are not going anywhere. And so I think whilst the specific challenges change and individual market responses to those challenges change, actually the idea of global student mobili mobility isn't going anywhere. And it's how individual countries and individual institutions can harness that and make sure that the students are getting the best possible outcome from it but that also it fits with the broader institutional objectives. And I think that's where lots of places have had to flex what they do in the last few years. But we've seen in the UK, we've had huge challenges, but we've actually managed to huge, hugely increase the number of international students. So I think when people want to do it, there's always ways of making it possible. And I, I can't see that that's going to change anytime soon, even if the specifics do. As I'm sure you'll agree, Chris. Yeah, no, I very much see the size of the pie increasing overall. There might be a bit of exchange of percentage points difference in where they go to, but the pie is increasing definitely in the short to medium term. What I would say anecdotally, I was in Asia last week, so I went to Indonesia, Malaysia and um, Thailand. And destination markets should not underestimate the quality of domestic university education in those export markets and the rapid increase in transnational education. So my view on the long term would be that actually the biggest threat to most destinations is people staying in their own country. And if they do come at undergraduate level, especially, it won't be for a traditional three year degree. I think it will be for a part of their undergraduate program, which probably means for the UK postgraduate will be the, the sort of because we have a 12 month masters that will continue to be something I think that would be more of what people do. Whereas at undergraduate, I think there could be some long-term pressure for the UK. Excellent. And by the way, if next time you go to Indonesia, Vietnam or Thailand and do visit our article on ISAF Monitor, so we can tell you which apps to use and communicate with the locals. Thanks very much, um, Chris, Mirka and Alice for your insights. If anyone in, uh, wants to get in contact with Chris, Mirka or Alice, you can email us via podcast at ISAF.com. Thank you very much. Coming up, Keys to the Market, where this month we focus on Egypt. But first, a message from our sponsor, University College Birmingham. 
UCB is an award-winning university in the heart of the United Kingdom, complete with a dedicated international centre. Partnered with the world-ranking University of Warwick, it offers international students the chance to study a range of specialist and management-led degrees, from finance and accounting and cybersecurity to sustainable engineering and business enterprise. And now for the final section of this episode, it's Keys to the Market, and this month's focus is Egypt. Egypt, officially the Arab Republic of Egypt, is a transcontinental country spanning the northeast corner of Africa and southwest corner of Asia. It is bordered by the Mediterranean Sea to the north, the Gaza Strip of Palestine and Israel to the northeast, the Red Sea to the east, Sudan to the south, and Libya to the west. And I admit, Craig, I got this all from Wikipedia, and there's just so much more to say about this country, for example, that it has one of the longest recorded histories of any country, tracing back to more than four millennia before Christ. But let's bring us back to the here and now, and specifically, let's talk about Egypt as an important student recruitment market. Well, here's a great fact to lay on top of the impressive ones that you've just set out. It's also the most populous Arab state. So here we have a country of 109 million people, more or less, a very youthful population. So, you know, more than half under the age of 25. Say it with me, listeners and hosts alike, market fundamentals. This is a <laughs> this is a market with really strong fundamentals that we look for and obviously a youthful yeah population with a surging college-age population being chief among those. Speaking of surging, the, the K-12 enrollment in the country, not surprisingly, has been growing leaps and bounds over the past decade. And while Egypt has a very solid higher education system, mostly composed of, of public uh, universities, it's being very much pressured to keep up with demand. And so this, along with strong economic growth, another important fundamental that we track in our growth markets, has led to a really significant increase in outbound mobility from Egypt uh, over the last 15 years. So we have basically seen outbound numbers quadruple from 2008 up through 2020 to the point where we had just, just under 50,000 Egyptian students going abroad. Even in, in It continued to grow even in the early years of the pandemic, such as the demand for study abroad and for higher education among Egyptian students. So those are all really strong indicators. In our previous episode, we talked about Kuwait. And I was saying, you know, Kuwait is a really interesting market. It's going to grow. It's not a strong enough market to, to, to get on a plane and go to the region all by itself. It, we, we, we suggested to listeners at the time that that was a, a great market to add on to your regional strategy for the Middle East. Well, Egypt, get on a plane and go because it's a, it's a, it's a big enough market all on its own. And, and with all of the uh, projections for further growth, there's a, a very strong demand to be tapped into for uh, institutions and schools of all sorts. Wonderful. When you, when you said market fundamentals, I could hear some of our listeners actually saying it with you. Now, you mentioned that 50% is age 25 or younger, but the fact is that the fact is also that their middle class is, is shrinking. What does that mean for educators considering Egypt as a source country? Well, it's I think some of the demographic trends that are that we're talking about are playing into that pattern in terms of the near term middle class shrinkage. But uh, the overarching trend in the country is towards stable and significant economic growth. And so we expect that that will play itself out in terms of uh, in terms of increasing middle class numbers in the years ahead as well. Right. So we'll see a more prominent role for Egypt in amongst these traditional student corridors that we discussed uh, earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really think so. 
Well, for those interested to connect with carefully screened and high quality Egyptian study abroad agencies, you can find them at ISAF Dubai in February or at one of our global ISAF events. And for a full overview, you can visit isaf.com events. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Mirka, Alice, and Chris for your valuable contributions. And thank you all for spending 30, probably a bit more than 30 minutes of your valuable time with us. And we'll hope you will tune in again next month. For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit icefmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at icef.com. Thank you for listening to the ICEF podcast. This episode was sponsored by University College Birmingham, an award-winning university in the heart of the UK, dedicated to the international student experience.